listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 146. In this edition, we're talking to teachers involved with the big West Virginia teachers strike that just ended in a big victory for the union to learn more about what they won and what they're still struggling for. First, the news. At a time when teachers are at the front lines of labor struggles everywhere, they're actually finding themselves on a much more dangerous front line in Florida in the debate on school violence and gun control. The Parkland mass shooting wasn't the first and sadly won't be the last horrific mass shooting incident at a public school. But never before has a movement like Never Again, the student-led protest campaign demanding protection for youth and meaningful gun legislation in Congress, shifted the dynamics in Washington as it has now. But Trump has polluted the debate once again by airing the idea of arming teachers as a protection against mass shootings. It was, of course, incendiary bait for Trump's red meat base. But some progressive educators are seizing this chaotic political moment to address the deeper social problems that breed violence and fear in our schools. They're pushing for a different approach to security, and they want protection for students and teachers through social support, counseling, and an end to hardline disciplinary policies. That doesn't involve more law enforcement, and it certainly does not involve pistol-packing pedagogues in every classroom. So for many educators, the gun issue is not merely a matter of eliminating firearms, but of social transformation in school communities. I spoke to New York City school teacher Rosie Frischella about what she sees in urban public schools and what her students really need to reduce violence in their lives. What are you hearing from students and and um, administrators and other teachers about school safety and security and what does that mean in an urban school that might be very different from, say, Parkland? People are, like, shocked by the idea and the notion that um, our president would ask teachers to carry a gun to work. So it's it's almost laughable, but also, like, really scary at the same time. You know, if you think about someone like Philando Castillo, who was a, a school staff member who had a license to carry a weapon and was shot by the police. So just even this notion of bringing in weapons into our school is ridiculous. Um, you know, our job is to de-escalate, to protect, to listen, to love to care for our students. Um, I would never, ever want to harm one of my students. It's not so much about having more security or having more police or metal detectors. I think it's it's more about having more staff to be able to have one-on-one conversations with licensed therapists who can check in with our students and can be there and can listen. Um, you know, we really want to stop the violence that's happening in our society. I think we need to deal with the trauma that a lot of our students are facing. You know, arming people is just going to create more heartbreak and people making really poor decisions because they're, they haven't actually dealt with the racism that they've been taught or the sexism, you know, that they've been taught in society. You know, and so I think 
if you're thinking about Armin teachers, I mean, who's going to be the target? You know, we see who's the target of the police. I also spoke to longtime teacher union organizer and now professor of education, Lois Weiner, about why punitive approaches to school safety don't work and what does to promote a positive school environment for all. I'd like to see the union, the union leadership, do something that they haven't, which is to frame the whole issue of these school shootings, not just in terms of gun control, which has been the exclusive focus, but in terms of violence in our society, this is an extremely violent society. And that violence has been exacerbated by cutbacks in social services and stresses that are put on families and individuals. And, um, you know, I, I think it's very interesting that there's this idea that schools should be safe places for young people. But at the same time, the schools face all kinds of regulations now that have robbed teachers and have robbed the school of the capacity to treat kids as human beings who are individuals, and the schools have become more depersonalized. And the other thing I want to say that has been remarkable to me is the failure to relate these acts of violence in our society, these mass shootings, to the militarization of the society and the fact that the increase in the Pentagon budget was not in the military budget has not been challenged. It has an effect on kids and it has an effect on everybody. When you go to an airport or you go to a subway station or you go to a bus station and you see people with machine guns patrolling, that creates a context that normalizes, that normalizes gun use in a public space. And that was Lois Weiner, and before that was Rosie Frischella, two educators, talking about school safety and what reducing the violence really requires. It has been a heck of a couple of weeks for education workers on strike. Last episode, we talked about and to St. Paul teachers who came within a hair of striking before getting a deal. And this week, we have teacher and professor strikes all over. To begin with, our friends in the UK university system are on their third week of striking over pension changes. This is a familiar story to Americans, probably. The universities want to make changes to the pension plan that covers lecturers at over 65 UK universities. Their union, the University and College Union, UCU, is striking to prevent these pensions from being shifted from a defined benefit pension to defined contributions. Defined benefits meaning that employees get a set level of benefits, 
and defined contributions, meaning that their benefits are subject to how much they pay into a system that pays out based on its investment earnings. It's kind of like gambling. This is a common thread over here, of course, but it is reaching around the world. And so the university strike is taking place in a context of increased privatization everywhere. As Stephen Parfit at Jacobin writes, quote, the underlying reason for this anger is a vicious circle that has closed at UK universities over the past 20 years. Students pay much more for their education. Teachers get paid less to give it to them. It's crucial to understand how British higher education has changed, but also to see how those changes are connected to wider transformations in British society. Unless the strike is seen as part of a broader shift in the economy, which is brought about the privatization of every conceivable space, the growth of casual labor in many industries, and the extension of lean production throughout the economy, the long-term transit challenges will continue unabated, end quote. So this is, of course, in other words, something we have talked about plenty on this podcast, the precarization of formerly middle-class work that was assumed to come with high status, and, well, the inserting of private profits into, well, everything. We tend to assume that advanced degrees will guarantee a good job, but what we've seen increasingly is that this is no longer true. The university lecturers and staff remain on strike. Students have been taking action, including occupations, in solidarity with them. We will, of course, keep you updated. And if you are one of the strikers, get in touch. Belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Like the striking teachers of West Virginia, we saw this week yet another militant labor action that touches on issues of labor, economic justice, and gender equality. The International Women's Strike on March 8th. People took to the streets around the world, and I spoke with New York City activist and organizer Rosanna Aran ahead of the protests to talk about why this moment is important for labor activism and feminism, and what her group, the low-wage worker organization Laundry Workers Center, is doing to help organize workplaces locally, as well as to empower low-wage women around the world who are representing migrant communities and communities of color. Can you just... Tell me how this mobilization may be different from last year. What has maybe changed about the political atmosphere? And are there particular messages that you're trying to highlight this year that might be new? We are building, you know, we created a base last year, but this year we are, you know, building on top on top of that base. Now we see, we are facing the realities that, you know, Everything is related, everything, like, we have to connect the dots. We women represent a percentage of the working class in terms of, like, you know, we're facing a lot of issues um, in the workplace, in the community. I think one of the key developments for feminists um, in the past few months has been the rise of this Me Too movement, and you see actually um, many people taking some of their criticisms of patriarchy and misogyny into the workplace. How do you think Me Too might be changing the dynamics of the immigrant and labor movements here in New York, if at all? And uh, what do you hope that people might be able to take away from it? With the Me Too movement, I feel like uh, many women feel more confident to come out because they realize they realize that it's not just happening to them, or like it's not just happening to to them. They have to be silent. 
So it's it made more easy that a woman can uh, express themselves and say, like, look, uh, all these women in many in different industries, in different uh, levels, um, in different um, economic situations, they are going through this. And right now, that empower people to share that your story and like maybe change the way to how and see and, and really demonstrate that this is this is a very serious serious problem that is happening to many many women in in the in different industries. That was Rosanna Aran of the Laundry Workers Center. The UK universities are not the only ones on strike, either. Graduate workers at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign have been on strike since February 26th in a strike they say is about keeping the doors of higher education open to working-class people. I spoke with Ashley Anda from the Graduate Employees Organization about their struggle. So we're talking, you're just getting out of a meeting, talking about um, the tentative agreement with the university. So tell us what happened. Yeah, so uh, the meeting that I just got out of was a meeting to hold a vote on a proposal that the administration put out um, overnight, and the administration and the Graduate Employees Organization uh, came to a tentative agreement on this proposal. So yesterday at 9 a.m., uh, they went into a bargaining session, and they actually bargained uh, all day, overnight, mm-hmm. and I think that... It finished around uh, 26 hours later um, oh, with this tentative agreement. Yeah, so uh, our bargaining team, uh, they were very tired, and, you know, it was it was kind of a relief to, to arrive at a proposal that they felt sure. like they could take to the membership. So the meeting that yeah. we just had was from general membership to um, see the proposal, to discuss it, ask questions, you know, raise any concerns, and, uh, you know, vote to accept or reject. Uh, mm-hmm. A vote of rejection would ultimately mean that we would go back out on the picket lines, continue with mm-hmm. the strategies that we put in place a few days ago um, when we were actively striking with picket lines. Uh, mm-hmm. We had pickets up around five buildings on average every day, um, yeah. along with sending roving tickets to different locations around campus. Um, but of course, one you know fundamental aspect of the strike is withholding labor. So right now, right. because the votes are being tallied, the strike is technically still on because everybody, yeah. everyone is expected to continue to withhold labor, but the pickets right. have been taken down um, yeah. until after the vote is counted. So that's that's the situation that we're in right now. And of course, in a you know a ratification just would mean that we would uh, spend the weekend probably sleeping because many of us have not <laughs> in a while, and yeah. then we would go back to work on Monday. Yeah. So can you tell us anything about what's in the deal or not until it's been voted on? I can tell you about the deal. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So I'll tell you some of the some of the kind of attractive features of this proposal mm-hmm. um, versus okay. our last five-year contract that yeah. we've had, you know, since 2012. So right. um, one really great improvement is 
that the university moved from 80% up to 87% on our health coverage premium, the insurance cost. Mm -hmm. And so they'll now pay 87% of that. Um, And for the first time ever in our contract, we have partial coverage of a premium for one dependent. So for those graduate students who, you know, are married or who have um, children, they can use this partial coverage, which is 25% of that premium um, for one of the dependents. And that's really, that was important to us because part of keeping higher education accessible uh, is obviously that anyone from any background can apply. Uh, right, yeah. You know, parents. Um, and so that was really important to us. Uh, another great thing, on the, on the parent note, another great thing is that we got some language that gives us a little bit more flexibility with parental leave. And so, um, you know, the, essentially what, what we got there is just that you can take, um, you know, some number of weeks in, you know, these chunks of time. Uh, yeah. Whereas our old contract was like, oh, yeah, you can take your parental leave for X amount of time immediately following, you know, the birth or adoption of your child. Uh, but this one allows for more flexibility in parental leave. Another uh, thing that was accomplished was setting the wage percentage increases in the first three years of the five-year contract. So for the first year of the contract, um, we got a 4.5% raise. And for the second mm-hmm. and third years, we got uh, 2%, 2% raises in the second and third years. Now, the yeah. fourth and fifth are to be determined um, because uh-huh. we left those um, we left those uh, in a way that we can reopen or revisit the case uh, uh, when we get to years to year four. Why uh-huh. that is so important for us is that the University of Illinois has this thing called the Campus Wage Program, and yeah. part of our struggle has been fighting the Campus Wage Program, which uh-huh. is a program that gives unilateral power to President Colleen, who's the president of our university, to right. determine the wages. And so... Yeah. Um, previously, they wanted us to be on a campus wage program for three years of a five-year contract, but uh-huh. we've been able to establish, you know, percentages for raises in the first three years, and we've just left it open-ended about what will happen in years four and five, so that gives us time to work on how we want to essentially refute the campus wage program's existence mm-hmm. uh, and try yeah. to determine our wages in bargaining, it's the case that we must bargain our wages and that right. if we aren't bargaining our wages with our employer, that is a violation of labor law. So right. that actually was the foundation of of this um, unfair labor practice claim that we filed, which uh-huh. made our strike an unfair labor practice strike. Um, so it's, it's an accomplishment because we've managed to put off the campus wage program um, uh-huh. and avoid a situation wherein we'd apply or, you know, file another ULP, an unfair labor practice. So that was really good. And regarding 
um, the issue of tuition, which obviously was a hot topic for us. You know, we've been saying time and again that yeah, if a graduate student worker is doing the work of a graduate assistant or a teaching assistant, then they should be compensated for doing that work. So the tuition waiver language in the past contract was in a side letter to the contract. And given the nature of side letters, um, those things can, you know, sometimes, like, have a time limit or, you know, an expiration date. And so Mm -hmm. we wanted to retain language that was in that tuition waiver side letter that said that when you are admitted and enrolled in a program, you are guaranteed a tuition waiver in that department. We wanted that, but we wanted it in the contract, not as a side letter that we would have to have constant arbitrations over. So um, a major move happened because the language of that side letter is now in the contract as an article. And it states the same thing, that mm-hmm. a person who is admitted to and enrolled in a department has the guarantee of a tuition waiver, and that even if modifications are made to that program, they are offered uh, the protection of that guaranteed tuition waiver under, you know, the first year's uh, rules or, you know, terms. So they'll have the protection of the tuition waiver for all five years of their graduate studies, um, uh-huh. or, you know, if their department is a five-year program, for example. So you mentioned, and I think this is really important that I want our listeners to get, that a big part of the strike was you all talking about keeping higher education accessible to everyone to make sure that it doesn't get closed off to everybody who isn't rich. Um, so tell right. us a little bit about what that's meant in the whole process, in deciding to go on strike, in the organizing, in the strike itself, and in the deal that you've done. The University of Illinois is a land-grant institution that right. uh, was essentially founded to serve the industrial working class. And, you know, our motto is is learning and labor, I believe. <laughs> and so, you know, it's kind of interesting when something that started in the 1800s um, has an original mission or purpose that you can still get behind, and that the University of Illinois as a land-grant institution, um, you know, is supposed to serve the industrial the industrial working class, uh, that's, that's something we can still get behind, that working class yeah. students um, should be able to go here. Yeah. So... In, in trying to push this education for all message and, and proposal, uh, it's that we, that we actually, you know, believe in the mission of the university and yeah. that it's a little unnerving that administration at that university, um, are maybe reinterpreting what it's for or getting away mm-hmm. from its original mission. Uh, but we we do seek to make sure that higher education is accessible to all people. And, you know, I am someone who did not think uh, that I would end up in college because I wasn't sure how I was going to afford it. And, yeah. you know, my mentors in as I was an undergrad always advised me to apply to programs that would give me, you know, a full guaranteed tuition waiver 
and that would give me a good stipend and that I would have health care. And, you know, that's important. Um, and so it's also a mark of university excellence when they can actually provide their students with um, a financial package that allows them to live. Yeah, and I think, you know, we don't hear a lot about that being the mission of a university. And so, and particularly as, as graduate student workers, right, as people who um, do work for the university but are also getting a degree from that, like what does that kind of a mission mean to you as both a student and a worker at the university? Yeah, so I recognize that, you know, we occupy this kind of interesting space um, and that it might be tempting to uh, ask a question like, you know, what are what are we most fundamentally? Are we are we more so students or are we are we laborers? But I think that setting up a question like that uh, is just a false dichotomy. Uh, right. Scholars, and that's going to mean that uh, to carry out our to carry out our research and to teach others about what we do, uh, we're yeah. always doing work, right? So. Doesn't matter yeah. that we we maintain um, that we are students uh, furthering our education and that we are trying to become teachers. Uh, we already are doing work to become that thing, and right. so I think we need to stop searching for a reason to justify poor working conditions <laughs> for people who lack power, <laughs> uh, you know, financial power. Yeah. yeah. So I understand one of the things that that, uh, folks were doing during the strike was uh, occupying some buildings on campus. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so um, two and a half days ago now, uh, we had our first group of occupiers go into President Colleen's office space and occupy that area. And a day after that, we had um, people occupying Chancellor Jones's office space. And, you know, of course, partially this was um, an escalation effort. Uh, also, it was a kind of legitimate and genuine uh, attempt at outreach because uh, when it's hard to find your decision makers, your key players at the university, uh, we just figured, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we'll take the bargaining to them. We'll show them how willing we are to stay up all night um, to kind of, be in this uncomfortable situation where, you know, our occupiers are sleeping on the floor and under tables and um, all to prove the point that we're willing to bargain, that we want to contract. And, you know, I personally think it's absurd that we we feel this intense pressure to uh, suffer to prove a point, um, but that is what we had to do. <laughs> So when will you know the results of the vote? Yeah, so after our second um, voting opportunity passes tomorrow at about Mm -hmm. 4 p.m., I am hoping that we have an answer by 8 p.m. I'm not sure how long it will take to, um, you know, double and triple check the votes, but I'm hoping that by tomorrow night we'll, we'll have an answer about ratification. That was Ashley Anda of the Graduate Employees Organization. After nine days of a statewide strike that closed every single school district in West Virginia, the teachers and school employees have won a 5% raise for 
every public employee in the state, plus an investigation into their health insurance problems and more. It was nine days of a dramatic action that recalled both the 2011 Wisconsin Capitol occupation over Scott Walker's anti-public sector union bill and the 2012 Chicago teachers strike, as well as hearkening back to West Virginia's own history of labor battles. Teachers wore red bandanas to evoke the coal miners of the Battle of Blair Mountain, and the earliest counties to strike were the counties that were deepest in coal country. We'll hear from several West Virginia teachers on today's episode. The night before the strike began, I spoke with Leah Clay Stone of Logan County about how things got started. Okay, I uh, teach at Logan Senior High School in Logan County, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. I am a special education teacher. The thing that caused this to happen is state work has been, state workers have been notoriously underpaid. That's been a thing that was, that's just been accepted. But the insurance benefits counterbalance that. And when our benefits package was rolled out this year, the premiums, the monthly premiums, the deductibles, and the out-of-pocket expenses were basically making it look like we were getting a pay cut. Yeah. And then when at the state of the state address, the governor suggested a pay raise. It was, it was like 1%, I think, at the time. I don't, I don't even remember. Like, I didn't yeah. realize it's a month ago. Whatever he suggested at the time would basically be eaten up in the insurance changes. The, the insurance is the thing that caused the right to come together. But we've also got the issue of pay because they, I keep seeing this number thrown around $45,000, $45,000 the average teacher salary. I've been teaching for seven years and I am nowhere near that. So I think, I think that people really have just gotten tired of the, the lip service that seems to be coming from Charleston. Yeah. And they're taking a stand for a for themselves. Tell me about how things got started. How did um, teachers start talking to each other? So I am the local vice president for the Logan County Education Association, which is which is the the arm of the uh, uh, NEA and WBEA here in Logan. I don't know if you're familiar with the geography of this area, but our counties are very small. Yeah. Um, so it's nothing for someone to live in one county and work in another. Uh-huh. So we have a lot of people working in Logan County that live in Mingo County. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people who live in Wyoming County and work in Logan County. So there's a whole lot of fleet over there. And the fire got ignited in Wyoming County. And the fire spread to Mingo County. And through people talking to their neighbors at home and then bringing those concerns to work friends, it, like, it literally was like the fire just catching and going. So we decided as the executive committee for the Logan County Education Association, we decided to have an emergency meeting at the very beginning of the legislative session. And it was a very, like, we did an informative meeting. Like, we talked about changes to the PEIA, which is our insurance program, and expectations and how to contact your representatives and what you need to be talking to them about. It was open to all state employees in the area. We didn't care what organization you're with, even if you're not with an organization. But if you right. want to know what's going on, come on down and we'll share some information with you. So we did that. And I don't know, probably about an hour into the meeting, we had dismissed 
We had dismissed the state workers and kept the people that are employed by Logan County Schools. And this is all under the direction of our organization representatives, like the paid staff of our organization. Basically, there was a call from the floor and the people. I mean, this is a, this is a people movement. We see people wanted. Um, they said, is there a way we can call for a vote to see if we can go into our schools and see if we can join Wyoming and Mingo County for this one day out? And I was like, sure. So we call, So I'm standing up getting ready to count. Yeah. You know, because that's what you do with this group of a couple hundred. Right. I didn't have to count. I, I don't know that there was anybody even still seated. Yeah. Like it was a resounding yes. So at that point in time, I used my production management and stage management background because I, I, I came at the, I came at education roundabout through theater to begin with. Oh, great. So I used all of those skills through together. Okay, this is this school. I need somebody representing this school. I need somebody representing this school. We managed to, from that point, get ballots into every single school and every bus garages and have them back into my hands counted within 24 hours. Wow. I literally was creating a ballot as I was walking out the door of the building. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, somebody else needs to drive. I need to take care of this. So within 24 hours, we had our answer that, yes, we, we wanted to walk out with Mingo and Wyoming County. Yeah. And it's just kind of grown from there. And the day that we had picked to walk out, we kept it quiet, but it wasn't quiet. Nothing stays quiet because everyone loves social media. But we were trying to avoid an injunction, basically. Right. But the day that we decided to go, our schools were shut down um, by our superintendent of schools and board of education president. I met with our superintendent on the day before the planned walkout. Said, look, 84% of Logan County school employees say they are not coming to work tomorrow. It would be in your best interest to close schools. So when luckily we had some pretty nasty weather uh, the day that we were going to Charleston to uh, rally at the Capitol, temperatures down in like the single digits in some places and some snow. So other school systems canceled. So what was going to be a three-county walkout ended up being somewhere between five and seven counties at the Capitol that day. There is something to be said about seeing a wall-to-wall sea of red from the chamber doors of the Senate all the way back to the rotunda and then from the chamber doors of the House all the way back to the rotunda. It was really an impressive sight to see that many people who have come together for an an explicit purpose. Because so many times we're just, you know, we all race independently, but everybody's agreeing on this this goal. It It was really amazing because everyone was wearing red that day. And it was also a bit of chaos. Because there's, I mean, there's literally so many people there. Those people are encouraged to go to the Capitol, but if the school system system does not shut, then Mm -hmm. we're going to pick it where we need to pick it, Mm -hmm. you know. With their plans to make sure that even bus garages are picketed. So if the buses don't roll, then do you really have schools? We're teachers. We are the role models for our community. Mm -hmm. Like, when this is all said and done, because it will it will all be said and done at some point in time. We have to still be those role models. Parents still have to be okay giving us their children. How is how has the response been from the parents in your community? On the day that we went to Charleston two weeks ago, 
there were local rallies here held by parents because while we were going to Charleston, they wanted to make sure that there was information being handled here. So they're out in the snow, in the cold, with their informational ticket. We've had some walk-ins at different schools. It seems like there's a whole lot more of that going on at the grade schools. At the high schools, we're already we're starting class at 7:25, but the grade schools are hitting it up pretty good, and that's that's like that's really great to see. You're in a part of the state that has this incredible labor history that, you know, a lot of Americans are really detached from that past now. But what does it mean to have this wave of action, you know, generated in a place that has seen all these incredible, you know, labor struggles? I grew up with a, my mother was actively involved in the West Virginia Education Association when I was a child. She was on strike in 1990. My yeah. brother and I were on the picket line with her mom. Yeah. My father was a coal miner uh, through the 1980s. Personal experience, I knew what a picket line was early on. As I got older, there was a fire tower on top of Blair Mountain that used to be a site for you know, parties in high school, you know, mm -hmm. because there's nowhere else to go. Why not go on top of the mountain and see the world? So people were doing that. And then I started to look into more, uh, okay, what is this place? So then you start to know the history of our mine wars and what they were fighting for. It's rather impressive to me that people who people don't have the knowledge of what it means to be union proud mm -hmm. or what it means to be involved in an organization. For the past few years, we've struggled to keep membership even in our organization. Mm -hmm. they, there seems to be this shift in our culture where we expect people to do things for us and we don't need to participate in it. But through this moment and this movement, we've been finding out, people have been finding out that they are the movement. If they want something done, they have to speak for themselves. They have to speak up. But we're being backed by our history. Yeah. Um, so we're also being backed by the UMWA, yeah. by the Truth Association by communication workers. And it's unprecedented for ASCWV and WVEA and West Virginia School Service Personnel organizations to all three work together. Yeah. Like that's completely unprecedented. It's a really interesting feeling that we've got going on right now. Like it's almost one of those, on Saturday with my spot for the rally, was I was standing five feet from the base of the Lincoln Walks at Midnight statue um, that's on our Capitol grounds. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm standing five feet beside Lincoln in the shadow of our Capitol, and we're making this huge decision to say enough is enough, let's take a stand. That was Leah Clay Stone, a special education teacher from Logan County, West Virginia, and an officer in the West Virginia Education Association. And after the strike ended this week, we were joined on the podcast by Jay O'Neill, a middle school teacher from Charleston, West Virginia, and Emily Comer, a high school teacher in South Charleston, West Virginia, about what was won, what still remains to fight for, and more. So explain the latest developments um, in the labor dispute and what the teachers 
eventually won uh, through their struggle uh, with the legislature? And what are the next steps now? Basically, where we were at was once we first went out, um, the leadership ended up sitting down with the governor and kind of hashing out a plan. And what what they kind of came out with was a 5% raise um, for all teachers and service personnel and strangely state troopers, which was somehow in the mix too. Um, and then 3% for all other public employees. And um, then they also had a thing where um, our insurance, which was really the biggest issue behind this, it's called PEIA. Um, they basically said, we're gonna have a, a task force it's going to have set meeting times and, and deadlines, and we're going to look at a new new funding sources for it and try to really get it actually fixed so there's not any more cuts every year. Mm-hmm. And when that had that happened um, last week, and when that came out, um, and I'm sure you've seen the reports, the, the membership was not really thrilled. Um, I, I think the way we found out was kind of frustrating. Basically they came out of the meeting with the governor and there was a press conference. And so the members found out through the press conference rather than hearing it from our leadership. Mm -hmm. And so I think that kind of really um, frustrated and upset people. Emily, what am I forgetting? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think that absolutely just the way that we found out was frustrating. And I think the fact that, you know, from the beginning, the number one issue was the insurance rather than salaries. That also frustrated people. But, you know, there really was a turning point. And, you know, the next day there was a shift and uh, the unions came back and really worked with us and they were very apologetic. And um, they also sort of gave us more control. We ended up taking a vote and we said, you know, we're staying out longer. We are not ready to go back in. We are not going, we made it clear that around the state that we were not going to go back to school until we got the 5% raise. Mm-hmm. And the unions didn't really press us on that, union leadership, I mean. So it was at that point that we, the union membership and the union leadership came back together after there was some tension on that Tuesday. Yeah. And I think that that Wednesday, like in our county, I know we actually took a vote and said, you know, we are staying out regardless of what the rest of the state does. And I think it just worked out that all the counties that day either took a vote or already had some prior vote saying, I know leadership said go back in on Thursday, but we're not because we were very skeptical that this pay raise is actually going to get through. And we wanted to make sure we had the executive order from the governor about the insurance. And obviously, I'm glad we stayed out because over the weekend, the Senate, the House passed a 5% pay raise, no problem. The governor obviously said he'd sign it, but the Senate shifted it down to 4%. Um, And so it was clear to us, and we made the right move that we needed to stay out because we just did not trust them. Yeah. And by the way, there was some last minute sort of confusion or horse trading over the language of the the bill wavered back and forth between five and four percent. Could you clarify what happened there? The Senate accidentally passed the bill, even though they had spent so much time saying we're only going to pass this at four percent. And uh, they accidentally passed the bill with the five percent language 
in it. They, then they had to, and then they had to scramble to amend it on what was that jay they had to scramble to amend it and there was confusion over whether it was done on second reading or third reading and so whether or not that was constitutional and um it was really a mess i actually rushed back to the capitol so i could see all of that happen um in the senate gallery and things were just crazy in the senate gallery i mean the person sitting beside me kept saying which you're not allowed to talk at all in the senate gallery you're supposed to be completely quiet mm-hmm. um and i think that the the guards uh, in the senate gallery who are normally really careful to make sure every there's you know a sense of order and that everyone's quiet they were so focused on uh the chaos that was happening on the senate floor that they were not paying attention to the chaos that was happening, you know, uh, with the public sitting in the gallery. Uh, so they were, you know, people were talking, people were standing up and looking and the person sitting beside me kept saying, the wheels are off, the wheels are off. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, that was, a that was quite a scene. Yeah. So I know, when we talked before, Jay, you were saying that one of the demands that people were making was that money for the the five percent raises um, come out of taxing the energy companies that have obviously made a lot of money out of West Virginia over uh, the past several, well, past hundred years or so. So that seems to have been skirted for the moment. But um, talk about how the politics of that have maybe changed over the course of this strike and how you can keep up the pressure for those taxes. Yeah, I, I mean, that was a really cool development in the strike to see that people became aware of that and that, you know, that the severance taxes on natural gas, for instance, should really be raised and that that would bring in a lot of money and that that wouldn't affect your average West Virginian. You know, and I think a lot of people woke up to that and it was really exciting, but it, it's become clear through this kind of battle that the Republicans were in no way going to budge um, on that at all. In fact, finally, the 5% raise we got, which actually was cool. It ended up being for all public employees, not just teachers and service personnel. Um, they're somehow doing this, um, from cuts because, you know, that's just (laughs) the Republican way. And supposedly from like higher future revenue projections for the next year. So basically they're doing all this without raising any revenue, which is still just insane. And we know that the problem is bringing in more revenue and raising taxes on these things. And it's going to be a prolonged fight. One of the things that's still going on is the PEIA um, task force and insurance. And so I think one of our messages is definitely going to be hammering home. Look, it needs to be natural gas severance tax. It makes sense. It's an industry that's still growing here. So potentially each year we should be having more money coming in with that. And I think that's a fight we're just going to have to continue to have. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right, they're they're talking about cuts. Um, Obviously, the Republicans are sort of threatening that the cuts will be to social programs and Medicaid. And so connected to the, the question about, you know, energy taxes, how do you think about, you know, plans going forward to make sure that doesn't get taken out on the poorest people in West Virginia. It's critical that there's nothing in the language of the bill, you know, that calls for those cuts. And so that's something that's going to happen in the future if it does happen. And so we have time to fight that. And from the very beginning, our, you know, our message has been we 
want this funded uh, through revenue. We want this funded through a reversal of corporate tax cuts. So we, you know, let's eliminate tax breaks for the wealthy. You know, that was our message very early. And then that kind of got turned into a gas severance tax. Um, And that ended up being the main message in all of this. And we were doing that at the same time that we were, you know, making sure before we ever went out on strike that we that our kids were going to be fed. And this is at the same time that we have a Republican controlled legislature that is cutting SNAP benefits. So they've made very clear where their priorities lie. And we have made very clear where our priorities lie. And we now have a very mobilized a huge, you know, mass of people who, you know, I think share similar values where we, we care about our kids that live in poverty. And, um, we also care about their families. And, um, I think we're going to continue to make sure that, you know, there aren't cuts in their own places. And these, this revenue comes from the right place. Sadly, the only thing that Republicans might hate more than raising teacher salaries is uh, taxing the rich. So I know, right? And right. of course, I love that the governor literally owes back taxes to his own state. That was like my, one of my <sighs> favorite details that I learned in all this. Yeah, Kentucky as well, by the way. <laughs> so oh, he owes Kentucky back taxes too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right. Literal coal billionaire governor. Um, it's it's great. Um, so billionaire in the state of West Virginia. <sighs> You know, really. Um, And his name is Justice, which also makes me laugh. Uh, (laughs) And he was a Democrat. (laughs) Okay. I know. (laughs) Um, I want to go back to you guys, though. Um, So tell us a little bit about sort of the organization and the communication, because West Virginia is a pretty kind of spread out rural state. Talk about sort of the role of of existing organizations and social media and all of that fun stuff and how all of you managed to coordinate this massive 55 county strike. I think early on, um, a lot of it was like Facebook, like social media and connecting with people on there before we even really knew we were going to strike or before Mm -hmm. people were even saying that. I think it was just like connecting with people that felt similarly across such a, a rural kind of spread out state. I think it really helped people just realizing like, oh, I'm not alone. Other people feel this way too. Oh, like kind of validating their feelings and their frustrations um, with the situation. And then from there, I think when things started kind of like heating up a little bit and people were talking about walking out things, I think that's when you saw more of the traditional kind of union structures step in and and started calling for county meetings and coordinating more on the state level. What what do you think, Emily? Is that accurate? (laughs) Yeah, I I absolutely agree. Um, a lot of this happened through, you know, very early on, long before there was ever a talk of strike. We um, started uh, organizing people to come out just to town hall meetings and um, PEIA hearings, our public uh, employees insurance agency. They have these uh, hearings every year where people show up and just, uh, you know, they talk about the... Um, plan for the upcoming year and so how the benefits have changed and jay when did those start last year how early uh i think no what november early november 
Yeah, November. And so that was around the same time that that education town hall was last year. So this is really when all this started was around November of last year. And um, we created Facebook events um, and shared them into this Facebook group that we created for public employees. And we called it, you know, West Virginia Public Employees United. Yeah, we just invited a bunch of people. We created a Facebook event. We invited a bunch of teachers to it, a bunch of other public employees. And, you know, in the course of just showing up to these events and kind of hearing from members of the PEIA board, hearing from legislators, people started to get really angry and people, you know, were working through the process and seeing that they weren't getting anywhere and they weren't being heard. And um, they were, people then started calling their legislators and sending emails to their legislators and people started posting screenshots of those emails their emails they would get back to the group and yeah it just sort of took off from there and were there um just to clarify i mean were there uh, was there participation from parents and students and were you doing outreach with them simultaneously as you were um, doing sort of that that labor organizing at the back end that came a little bit later yeah i I mean, I think some of it is honestly because we were focused around the insurance and because these cuts have been happening year after year for years, I think it was kind of widely known uh, how bad this was. So some of it we didn't have to do as much outreach also because PEIA in West Virginia covers over 200,000 people. We only have one, 1.8 million in the state. So like almost everybody knows somebody that's on it. Um, and I think that kind of helped. And then more of the outreach came as things ramped up and we started doing walk-ins at schools and things like that, kind of informational pickets to raise awareness. People have talked a lot about this sort of wildcat part of the strike. Um, you talked a little bit about the communication gap between the union leadership. But so a lot of people don't really understand what the union situation even is with teachers in West Virginia. So maybe um, could y'all sort of explain that the relationship of the two unions to each other and to the state? Yeah. So we have three unions that represent school employees. We have two uh, teachers unions and then we have one uh, actually and both of those unions represent school service personnel as well. And then we have another union that's just for school service personnel. So we have, um, AFT, WVEA, uh, which is the state branch of NEA, and then we have uh, WVSSPA, the West Virginia School Service Personnel Association. And basically, you membership and membership is voluntary. You can be a member of any of the three. I don't know exactly what our numbers are, but membership is so much lower than it would be if things are not different. We don't have collective bargaining rights in, the, in West Virginia. And there's this real sense in West Virginia that our unions are dying. Prior to this, a lot of people had never been to a union meeting. They just had never been active at all in the union. Yeah. Jay, do you want to add anything to that? Well, it's this weird situation, too, at any given school here where you might have teachers that are members of one 
or the other or none. So it's 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 not like one whole building is one union. Um, they could be any or all. And I honestly feel like and up until this, we we had a lot of teachers not joining unions at all because they just felt like they couldn't afford to have that money taken out of their paycheck um, mm-hmm. because the pay was so bad. And so, yeah, it was kind of this just real like apathetic feeling. And I felt like the only reason people did join unions was just kind of for the legal protection mm-hmm. um, offered through that, not really for any kind of labor activism or anything like that. Has actual membership gone down? Uh, do you know the the numbers actually? I doubt it. I feel like, sin- I mean, since this happened, I think membership has definitely gone up. I don't know the numbers, um, but I think with this turn, it seemed like a lot more people were joining. Speaking of legal protection um the strike was sort of denounced as unlawful um and i think that there's a deliberate sort of a finessing of of that term um it turns out that the the legal action here is is questionable because um it's actually state case law that uh governs sort of teachers specific right to right to strike uh, per se, could you explain sort of the legalities of this and whether it makes a difference at all? If there's like an explicit um, piece of the code uh, that would actually bar you from striking versus, um, you know, just uh, it, it hasn't been tested in court yet. I don't I don't know all the details. I know. So in 1990, we had another teacher strike. It, it wasn't as big. There were, I think, 47 out of 55 counties. But at one time, I know in one of the counties, um, and I'm not going to get all this correct, but evidently there was some kind of legal decision made. And that's kind of been a little bit of the precedent for saying, okay, this is illegal um, for teachers to strike. Um, We kind of, you know, everybody heard that and there was some worry. And I honestly feel like there was a little bit of talk from the unions initially early on to kind of have people take caution because there's a lot of fear of injunctions and things like that coming down. But we kind of had a funny situation this time because our attorney general um, is also running to be um, U.S. senator. And so he's running in kind of a tight Republican primary. Um, So I don't think he wanted to be seen as the one cracking down on teachers. But then also it just sounds like at the county level, um, which is we're technically county employees, Um, because that's Mm -hmm. how our districts are set up. And so I think (laughs) there was a lot of hesitation, especially in some of these smaller counties, to even move forward with that. I mean, I think, Emily, remember yesterday somebody was saying in their county that um, the judge had even met with the teachers and he's like, I'm not going to serve an injunction on you, even if they try to get me to, like, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea about the legality of any of this, but I do know that... um, I keep hearing that it's like up to the superintendents to press for an injunction. So the superintendents would have to file for an injunction before uh, one could be filed at the county level. So if the attorney general were not going to file a statewide injunction and all of our superintendents supported us, we weren't going to get county injunctions. That brings up a funny twist we had kind of (laughs) during this process is, you know, early on we were nervous, especially different counties with some of the um, statements coming out. We were a little nervous that some county superintendents might not be as favorable as others. But 
last Friday, after there was kind of starting to be a breakdown in that 5% and the Senate was moving to 4%, um, I think 40-something of the 55 county superintendents met with the Senate president Friday afternoon, um, and he kept them waiting a couple of hours before he started the meeting. And everything I've heard from that meeting is it did not go well. <laughs> and um, then with some of the Republicans' actions on Saturday night during all that fiasco and everything, I think they actually pushed the superintendents more to our side. And I know a few superintendents even came out and said, yeah, we're not accepting anything less than 5% and we're not having school again till they get that, <laughs> which I thought was just like absolutely crazy <laughs> that the superintendents now were on the teacher's side. Right, right. Um, it's a different kind of uh, discretion in the law, but at the end of the day, I mean, what, what happens in, in the real world, you know, may or may not be what's on the books. So putting this more broadly in a in a legal context, I mean, the, the these past couple of weeks, um, the strike has been playing out against the backdrop of looming sense of impending doom from the Janus case at the Supreme Court. Can you just... Uh, discuss where West Virginia teachers are and do you see your strike as sort of a, a, a counterweight to this nationwide attack we're seeing on civil servants and their unions? So I think one interesting thing through this is like when when workers and unions, when you have fewer options, when you don't have collective bargaining and don't have some of these other mechanisms um, to try to achieve things, I, I think it does push you in a more radical direction with strikes and everything like that. And so I wonder if, if kind of a weird outcome of the Janus decision may be more strikes like this, strangely, because you're going to see unions in a way weakened, but I think if you're if mobilized correctly, and especially from the bottom up, I think you may see more, you know, events like this in the future. Yeah, we don't have a process for negotiating. What else are we going to do? We, we've been, you know, we showed up to town hall meetings and that didn't work. We showed up to PEIA hearings. And of course, that wasn't going to work. What are we going to do at a, at a hearing? There was no real process for us to, to negotiate your union did not have collective bargaining rights to begin with, right? Right. So in a sense, you've been you've been sort of, you know, living the Janus nightmare for... I mean, you know, worse than Janus, right? Like, Janus wouldn't take collective bargaining rights away. It would yeah, just it's take true. away agency fees. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So facing those pre-existing restrictions on organizing, I mean, have you have you found it to be... Obviously, it's it's an additional legal challenge, and it's a it, it imposes an additional burden on you when you try to do things the regular way. But uh, you know, does this just reaffirm um, some of the other strategies and tactics that you've been deploying as you try to look for more grassroots and maybe you know non-conventional ways of organizing? I mean, I think it almost it pushes it more into like almost like a. A, a movement rather than just a straight union thing. Because I mean, for us, for instance, we had a lot of teachers and service personnel involved who weren't members of any of, the, in any of the unions, you know, plus we had multiple unions working together. I mean, it was just this kind of crazy mess of people, but everybody kind of had a common focus um, and it worked. And so 
I think in some ways that's probably freeing because you don't have some of the bureaucracy and some of the stuff that I think actually slows down movements with it. But at, at the same time, I mean, you know, I do want to be real. I think Janice is going to make things difficult for people. I know in big states like California, they're definitely going to shed members. And I think they're going to have to think about like, what can we really do? And what kind of fights can we really take on that will like engage people? Yeah. Do you have any advice for uh, for folks in those other states? Whew. Emily, what do you think? <laughs> the world is watching West Virginia right now. It's all on you. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's so it's so hard to um to know what it's like. I mean, it's so hard to know what it's like uh, living anywhere else or uh, having any other kind of system you know what I mean so I don't yeah I don't know I don't know what it's like to to have collective bargaining um I don't know what it's um you know I I certainly it certainly hasn't been uh uh I certainly haven't gotten a lot of sleep in the last several months (laughs) you know these have not been ideal conditions for organizing yeah I bet I bet uh I wouldn't uh I, I'm not going to say like, oh, yeah, it's just it's fine. Like, you don't need to have a yeah. What, uh, don't worry about Janice. <laughs> don't worry about right. the decision. It's, you know, um, but I, there certainly is, you know, um, you can uh, in whatever conditions you can organize workers and win. Um, yeah, I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. And so while while you were out, the Communications Workers of America started a strike in West Virginia, um, and now it looks like Oklahoma and Arizona and Kentucky are all um, taking some inspiration from all of you. Um, are you in touch with people in any of those places or unions? Um, and what does it mean to you to sort of see this strike wave shaping up in the wake of all that you did? Yes. Um, well, we're trying to be in touch. We've made some preliminary contact online. And um, I know I've traded phone numbers with a couple of people. And I think we're just <laughs> trying to find some time and all, and all this craziness um, to reach out and kind of find out more what their situation is and how we can help them. So there's definitely some contact there. And I just think it's like really exciting um, to see, I mean, it's clear that we're not the only state where they've given the shaft, you know, to public education mm-hmm. and really public workers. And um, so I hope, I really hope this is the beginning of something big. And I hope that these other states can go even beyond what we did and, and you know, really push for some awesome things. We talked about giving advice to other teachers unions, but uh, in terms of insights uh, that that other people involved in the labor movement as a whole, um, public or private sector, um, can take away from the militancy that you guys showed in West Virginia. Um, you know, what are what are some of the broader conversations that you hope will come out of this um, for, for all labor unions and, and for even, you know, non, non-union workers who are still trying to organize their workplaces? I don't know. I feel feel like that's a question I need more time to think about. <laughs> I'm like still I'm still digesting everything. Um there is clearly an attack on all workers and this has uh shown us that 
you know, when workers come together, um, you know, around one issue, around one grievance, they will, you know, and they're kind of pushed to their breaking point and they say enough is enough. Um, and you basically, you know, show them there's another option. You show them, um, you know, we don't, we don't have to take this. Um, they will, they'll fight back. Um, and I, yeah, I just hope people continue to do that all around the country because they're, yeah, people don't just have to take it. I think one thing I've learned is, is they don't have to kind of share your politics. I think for a while I thought like, oh, I kind of have to meet really like-minded people in order to make something like this happen. But Emily's right. Like if, if you've just organized around an issue, um, like stuff will happen. And I was shocked at how politically different some of the people that have really been involved in this have been, but they've been just so issue focused and focused on the win with that, that it, it hasn't mattered. And so I guess advice would be, don't just sit back and think you have to line everything up perfectly in order for something to happen, but just work with what you have and focus around, uh, you know, a broad issue. And I think people will, will be motivated and will take action. Yeah. And, and people, and even like people just naturally like push all of their differences to the side in the name of solidarity. I've found like, yeah. um, yeah, we have had like a very, uh, diverse group of of people coming together in terms of religion and politics i mean you have you know i know that the national media in west virginia it's always like they're i can't name the number of like trump country think pieces i've read mm -hmm. right and uh you know and it's true there are a lot of you know so many people in west virginia did vote for donald trump and we definitely uh, we're organizing with some Trump supporters and a lot of Trump supporters. And we were also organizing with, uh, some very progressive people and, uh, people on the far left. And we were organizing with people who are Baptists and we were organizing with atheists and people of, you know, multiple races. And, you know, anyway, people all came together and just didn't care about any of their differences and just didn't fight with each other about, any of those other differences it was just like we can't we don't have time to fight about any of those things it's going to hurt the cause it's not worth it we have a goal and it is to win this fight for each other and people were so good to each other during all of this um it was a really beautiful thing yeah anything else y'all want to make sure people hear about uh just Support Oklahoma and Kentucky and Arizona and wherever else um, things yeah. are kicking off. And yeah, we were, I think one thing I will say is we were really heartened and, and pleased by so much of the support we had coming in from across the country, whether it was just like photos of people in solidarity or uh, San Francisco started it, but I know other people contributed money, but awesome people out there sending us a ton of pizzas to yes. the Capitol, which was actually kind of critical because we have security at our Capitol. And so once people get through it and then they leave to get food, it's hard to get back in because of the lines. Mm -hmm. um, and so just awesome stuff like that was really cool. So share the love with the other states that this is happening in and hopefully we can continue, you know, in solidarity. Yeah. 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 We'll start a, uh, a rolling sort of pizza trust fund for uh, the nationwide yeah. Kind of nationwide exactly. 
And that was Jay O'Neill, West Virginia educator and organizer, along with his colleague, Emily Comer. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. Where we pick a piece that we wish we had written, but alas, did not. And my pick for this episode is Bitcoin Rich Kids in Puerto Rico, Crypto Utopia or Crypto Colonialism. It's by Larissa Yarovaya and Brian Lucy in The Conversation. Is our Bitcoin future one of technological empowerment and progress or robotic enslavement? We're told often that next frontier technologies like cryptocurrency are going to make our lives exponentially better. But today, Puerto Rico is a window into a potentially more dystopian future. Since the hurricane season devastated the already deeply impoverished island, Puerto Rico has fallen under siege from disaster capitalism. To an even greater extent than other U.S. cities destroyed by natural disaster in recent years, This de facto colony has been thoroughly abandoned by federal authorities and is now a feeding frenzy for the vultures of Silicon Valley, the sea fertile ground for a technotopian laboratory of sorts. So this disaster capitalism has an even more sinister edge. It's become a global petri dish for crypto-colonialism. Larissa Yarovaya and Brian Lucy warn that as Puerto Rico struggles to recover and suffers the burden of chronic bankruptcy and indebtedness, hallmarks of neoliberal capitalism, quote, cryptocurrency entrepreneurs have moved to Puerto Rico to build a crypto utopia, initially dubbed Puertotopia, but now named Sol, where they plan to pay little in taxes. It's not just a fancy tax haven. Yes, they're Disaster response is to turn the disaster zone into a tax haven, as well as a charitably funded social project. And if technotopians get their way, Puerto Rico is likely to become more secure from government regulation than from the next terrible storm. But they plan to make the whole economy run on Bitcoin and blockchain. That's where the innovation part comes in. The newfangled cryptocurrency technologies that promise to make the whole island into a libertarian fantasy land are supposedly what's going to repel it out of disaster's wake. According to the authors, quote, cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin rely on a decentralized, extra-legal, and unregulated approach. While crypto billionaires will enjoy their Caribbean playground, poor locals with little knowledge of the technology will be excluded. The mostly male entrepreneurs who moved to Puerto Rico last year and plan to do more than create a cryptocurrency bank will perhaps bring crypto-libertarian ideas to the island. Their vision is similar to another would-be crypto-utopia, the Free Republic of Lieberland, which claims to be a micro-nation camped on the western bank of the Danube River. It uses Bitcoin as its national currency, which is a bit of an oxymoron. But instead of using this recovery effort in Puerto Rico to build equitably and provide long-term sustainable industries, including the types of green economic initiatives that many progressives are championing right now, the authors argue that the inherent instability of the Bitcoin market, 
along with the current wild bubble that has lifted it to dangerously high market values, could trigger yet more chaos for Puerto Rico. They write, quote, It's a game for wealthy people who can cash out early and lock in gains, having been the developers of the bubbly product. This is characteristic of any bubble. Those who get in early do well, those who cash in late do poorly, unquote. The recent vogue about new economic and monetary policy systems based on digital technology are exciting indeed. And while many of these initiatives can yield real promise in a material way for many poor people, think about universal basic income, for instance, these grand plans for restructuring the economy around technology are not devoid of ideology very often, and they should be viewed without, with a big caveat emptor. In Puerto Rico, the authors argue, the new cryptopia claims to offer liberty from big government and guarantee unprecedented economic and social freedom. But on a real economic level, Puerto Rico's ordinary working people will be categorically excluded from participating in this so-called new democracy. Just look at the demographic profile of the new leaders of Portotopia slash Seoul. The self-appointed royals of this fantasy island are mostly white dudes with fistfuls of venture capital to throw around for their entrepreneurial experiments, all at the expense of local people. But if the bubble pops, it's ordinary folks who will suffer the most, just as they are disproportionately vulnerable to climate change and pollution, just as they've always been more vulnerable to failed colonial social engineering projects, from bombs to medical experimentation. Crypto-colonialism pretends a new wave of tragedy for this island, based on a hyper-modern vision of social engineering that reproduces age-old hierarchies. This is neo-colonialism that combines the worst of both worlds, infinite tech-enabled possibilities for systematic exploitation of workers and communities, alongside the regressive prejudices and structural racism on which the most ancient forms of imperial subjugation have been built. Both the globalization of the future and the globalization of the past are converging on this island where the people are, as always, and once again, without power to control their own destinies. Long-time belabored listeners know how I feel about student debt. It is and always has been a labor issue. We've touched on the subject a little bit today, and to round out a show about education workers, I chose for ARG a piece from the New York Times titled When Unpaid Student Loan Bills Mean You Can No Longer Work by Jessica Silver Greenberg, Stacey Cowley, and Natalie Kitroff. Student debt is supposed to be taken out in order to improve your career. But in 19 states, government agencies can seize state-issued professional licenses if you default on your student loans, and one state suspends driver's licenses, which are almost always necessary in order to get work. Firefighters, nurses, teachers, lawyers, massage therapists, barbers, psychologists, and real estate brokers have all had their credentials suspended or revoked. The Times identified at least 8,700 cases where licenses were taken away, but notes that many state agencies and licensing boards don't even track this information, so that is almost certainly much lower than the actual number. Shannon Otto was one of those people. Thousands of dollars in loans helped put her through nursing school, and an unexpected illness led her to default on her loans. Tennessee's Board of Nursing suspended her license, and it would have cost her more than $1,500 to get it back. 
Student debt is, of course, now the largest source of household debt outside of mortgages, and while many people, as we discussed earlier, think of student loans as paying for fancy degrees that skyrocket you into the middle class, the reality is often very different. Nurses and firefighters and, well, teachers, as we have noted today, aren't exactly raking in the cash. The article reads, Tabitha McArdle earned $48,000 a year when she started out as a teacher in Houston. A single mother, she couldn't keep up with her monthly $800 student loan payments. In March, the Texas Education Agency put her on a list of 390 teachers whose certifications cannot be renewed until they make steady payments. She now has no license. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, who has worked to overturn these laws, called them tantamount to modern-day debtor's prison. And Deborah Curry, a nurse from Georgia, who's paying $1,500 a month on her loans now, noted, I really do want to pay the loans back. How do you think I'm going to be able to pay it back if I don't have a job? Seems a little uh, twisted, huh? That is all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, to all of you out there listening, sharing, and tweeting about the podcast. And a special thanks to our sustaining members. You too can be one, descentmagazine.org slash belabored-membership. $5 a month gets you a belabored tote bag. You can also always make a one-time donation. You can, as always, tweet at us at hashtag belabored, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a striking K-12 teacher or university employee, if you are in student debt and aren't we all, or on women's strike, or your state legislature wants to arm your state's teachers, we will put links to everything we've discussed on today's show up at the Descent website. You can also join us at the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago, April 6th through 8th. We will be recording a Belabored Live and doing interviews all weekend, so come say hello. Thanks, as always, again to our producer, Natasha Lewis, and to Descent for continuing to host us. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.